Take your Bible, turn to Titus chapter 3. This is the Word of God. In His infinite wisdom, He wrote it in the original reading audience in mind, in every audience up until today, and you in mind. So we can comfortably say this is God's Word written to speak to you, hear God, even now. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Let's pray. Lord, you've spoken in the reading of your word. We ask that you would speak in its preaching for your glory and for our good. Amen. It's not, a, I think, a difficult thing to see that Christianity is out of sync with the world around us. It's out of step. It's moving in one direction while all of culture kind of moves in another at a seemingly increasingly and accelerated pace. We get to see that in some sense just even in the ordination election of officers, The qualifications, it's wonderful to see the kind of men that God has qualified and called to serve in His church. We spent this just about a month ago or so as we were in Titus 1, but what is the the target for servants in the Lord's church? Is it the smartest? (laughs) No, obviously. Is it the most handsome? No, though the pictures last night might lead you to believe differently. Is it the funniest? Definitely not in this church. You see, our culture places value on skill, on giftedness, on leadership and brilliance. And the intriguing thing is that really God doesn't talk about almost any of those. 
He values holiness. So when he goes to describe the kind of men that he calls to be his ruling elders, his under-shepherds, he calls men that look like Jesus and handle the Word. And when he calls men to serve as deacons, he calls men that look like Jesus, that are ready to serve. It's funny, the resume (laughs) to be an officer in the Lord's church is a scary one in some ways. A man who looks like Jesus. The intriguing thing, and part of what the book of Titus is pushing, is that that very resume doesn't extend only to the pastor or to the session or to the diaconate. That resume doesn't apply only to the super-Christians who do this as their hobby or their job. That resume of holiness is intended to be the resume for everyone sitting in the pew. That's God's target for us. That's His definition of a successful life. It's a a person who is holy. In our culture, we have so much value placed on, I just, I want to be happy. I want to have money. I don't want to have any worries. I want the pain to go away so it stops hurting. I just want to avoid anything difficult. I just want to have an easy life. And it's intriguing how for the Lord himself, none of those things seem to really matter that much. Or certainly not nearly as much as making a people that look like himself. That's part of what we get at in Genesis 1 with him making us in his own image. It's that when we look at each other, we see in some sense what God looks like, but not just what God looks like. The design is to also see what God acts like, to see his character, to see his love, his gentleness, his compassion and kindness, to see his mercy written large in the lives of our brothers and sisters, but not just written in them, but written through them to us so that we may look at them and how they treat us and say, oh, I understand God's love better because of how you took care of me. Because of how you took care of me. Because of how you took care of me. To create a world, a church, filled with those who obey Him and delight in Him. That's where this passage starts. It's describing what that image looks like. And we're going to go a little fast since I talked longer during the ordinations, but you know I'm no respecter of the clock. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. Well, this is shocking. Like the the starting out, opening salvo for kind of how are we going to describe the body as a whole, these kind of general and generic commands. Chapter 2 was to the specific people groups, but now to the body as a whole. What is the Christian on Crete supposed to be? Submissive 
to the rulers and to the authorities. They are to be people that are obedient. Well, that's intriguing, as we know at this point in history. Um, Rome's not exactly known for their kindness. Rome was known for being excellent in their governance, but certainly not very just. (laughs) They were not very friendly and not very kind. Uh, In fact, actually, they treated this island so poorly uh, that we know they constantly had a kind of reoccurring series of insurrections and a general kind of grumpiness. Think about whichever political party is not in power in the U.S. and the way they talk on social media. That's kind of what Crete was like constantly. Just constantly uh, with the leaders that God had placed in, over them. And it's interesting that God then commands, what does it look like? What does their relationship with the government look like? Is it one of love and affection? I love the government. No, I'd be in trouble. It's not love. It's not affection toward the government. It's, interestingly, not even uh, a confidence in their competence. (laughs) But a church that loves the Lord so much and trusts the Lord so much and finds their safety in their proximity to King Jesus, that they can submit themselves even to a wicked and evil government, which Rome certainly was. It's one kind of category that's introduced. The second category to look at is really what then happens in verse 2. It defines how they are to interact with each other. Those that speak evil of no one. Those that avoid quarreling. Those that are gentle and show perfect courtesy toward all people. This is describing Twitter currently, isn't it? Any social media platform you want, that's just what it looks like. This is what American culture looks like currently, doesn't it? Constantly showing perfect courtesy toward all people. Not so much. It's intriguing, again, that this proximity to Jesus transforms the people of God so much that their relationship with other humans is radically altered. I love it. It doesn't say showing perfect courtesy toward the people who actually, like, wave at you when you let them, you know, walk in front of your car. Those are the people I like showing courtesy for, right? I stop at the crosswalk, they cut across, and they kind of wave, and I'll say, hey, thanks. Or you're in traffic and you stop and let them pull in and they give you the kind of, okay, great. But when they don't acknowledge, I don't like that, right? Wish I hadn't let them in, right? I wish I just nosed up right in the car behind me so they couldn't have got it, right? It's intriguing that there's these kind of broad sweeping commands. That our proximity to Jesus is to be so transformative that our love and our courtesy and our gentleness and our compassion extends to all people. Those that we love, those that we respect, and those that we do not. Respecting even those that seek to do us harm. Showing perfect courtesy even to the very end. This puts us completely out of sync with what the world has to offer, does it not? A people who, though maybe not trusting the government, submit to it. 
a people who may be not trusting their neighbor, still are kind to them and loving and genteel and courteous. This is a world in which, whew, can you imagine what that would be like? Can you imagine what this would be like? And then you kind of stop and go, what, actually, yeah, this is what the church is supposed to be. This is what it's supposed to be, that when we step into this place, these are the relationships that we're seeing modeled constantly in front of us, those that are submissive to the governing authorities and those that are constantly courteous and kind toward those around them being gentle and avoiding all forms of quarrels. That doesn't mean we don't disagree. I think courteous people disagree a lot. They just do it kindly and respectfully, honorably, and with gentleness. Well, some of us learn well through positive examples. Some of us, I guess, perhaps learn a bit through the negative. And again, here Paul immediately then jumps to the other side of the equation to lay out why these things are so kind of radically different. And where these first two verses lay out action sets for how we're supposed to interact with each other, the negatives actually aren't action sets as much as they are character conditions. For we ourselves were once foolish. We didn't understand what was up and down inside and out. We didn't understand how the world worked. We didn't understand. We were fools. Romans 1 tells us that we apart from Christ, suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And as a result, it corrupts our mind so that any wisdom we might have is eroded and corrupted and distorted so that the world itself is perverted in our eyes. Foolish, disobedient, those that are committed to not obeying God's law, but obeying our own laws. I I think sometimes here, again, as we've talked about in the past, we like to be a bit too simplistic and say that evil always looks like the kind of cartoon villain in the old Disney movie or Looney Tunes or something of the sort like that. Instead, I I suspect the disobedience here is probably more of just being strong-willed and not obeying God. Not some cartoonish evil, but instead just doing it my way when God's told me to do it another way. The change in the next two clauses is, I think, fairly grim, though, because it moves from a person here that seems to be kind of making some poor choices to explaining why they're making these poor choices. People who are led astray this is a passive verb. It's like expressing almost captivity. They're being kind of pulled into their disobedience. And the next one's even worse, slaves to various passions and pleasures. It presents somebody who's not in charge of their life. They're not in control of it. They're not running their own life. Their pleasures and passions are running it for them. And so they are in disarray, captured, enslaved, in bondage to the very evil in their lives. And what's the outworking? Passing their days in hate and envy, 
hated by others and hating one another. Boy, if that doesn't describe our current news cycle, I don't know what does. The interviews that we watch with your average quote-quote run-of-the-mill American, a person led astray, slaved to their passions, passing their days in hate and envy, hating one another and being hated by each other. It's a miserable life. A terrible life. What a contrast. The person of God so close to Christ that they're trusting Him for their safety even in place of the government or from the government. A person who's so close to Christ that they can extend courtesy even to the people that kill them. Versus the person that enslaved by their passions, is doing everything to make themselves feel good. Letting their desires run the show, letting their pleasures lead them this way and that, and being miserable the whole way. For those that have grown up in the church, those that have known Christ all their lives, I'm in that category, friends, I don't remember a day apart from Jesus. I'm thankful for that testimony. I don't, I don't remember days apart from him. And for many of us in that category, we, we miss the torturous bondage that verse 3 represents. The misery of being governed by someone that is destroying you from the outside in and the inside out. The burden the slavery. It's one of the reasons why we've built into the church fellowship times for you to talk is so that for those that have that experience like me, you can hear from those in the room that don't have that experience. We have some in the room here that were converted at 70, seven decades of walking, verse three, day after day, week after week, year after year, decade after decade only to find the freedom of Christ. Friends, talk with each other. Hear the stories. Rejoice in the transformation that Christ has given. Love our Savior in hearing from one another. This dynamic that's presented here, it's all throughout Paul's writings, it's all throughout the Bible, it's all throughout Titus particularly, but the contrast of of those that are living in freedom and those that are living enslaved. Those that live in freedom are those that are living in holiness, those that are living in obedience, those that are living in the law of Christ. Those that are living enslaved are those that live captured and captivated by their sins. What decides which one we get to be? Well, verse 4 through 8, really begin to explain it, 4 through 7, I guess. Walk us through, in many ways, the clear, precise, succinct portrait of the gospel. That when the goodness and kindness of God appeared, God saved us. 
Salvation given from God to mankind, a salvation that transforms, a salvation that frees, a salvation that makes new. And how do I get that good salvation? By working harder? By trying harder? By being a better person? By being smarter? By being better looking by being funnier, by being more gifted. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. It's His mercy. That's actually kind of really the fuel for why we stay so close to Christ Jesus because deep down every Christian knows it's so good, it's, it would feel like a scam that somebody like me could be forgiven. Like, I know the thoughts that go around in my head. I know the desires that bubble up out of my heart. It's amazing that I could be forgiven. Something we talk about officer training, it's amazing that he uses people like us. We know what we're like. <laughs> we have to live with ourselves. His mercy given, and this mercy is transformative. This is where you get to see kind of the deciding kind of thing between the two sides. He extends his mercy, and it's specifically what happened, the the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So as the mercy is extended, the Holy Spirit of God comes into the people of God and cleanses. We get to justification in a moment, being cleansed legally, but also being cleansed in our very actions. All being done by Christ, being poured out on us richly, the Holy Spirit being poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been legally cleansed, justified, we become heirs, those recipients of eternal life. Friends, it's very easy for us to get caught up in the distinction between those two things. Right? The, the life of freedom and obedience, the life of bondage and slavery to sin. Those are in so many ways easy things to see. They're tangible metrics. We have uh, examples in front of us constantly. We have good and godly examples. That's part of what officers are to be. We have sometimes negative examples that we don't want to be like. But the key, and I would say particularly for children in the church, is to know those distinctions are extremely important but they are secondary to the third part of the passage. That the real distinction, the the change in action is a reflection of a change in person. That the Holy Spirit of God is so powerful that He makes a person new, entirely new. It doesn't mean that there's not lingering corruption, but it means the transformation is there. It's why some of you know when you've talked to me in counseling, and there's a couple of words I don't really kind of buy into ever, when I hear people say, I can't, I can't, I know you can't, 
You have the Holy Spirit of God residing within you. I have every confidence in your ability to change, not because I have confidence in you. I have confidence in the one who has saved you. I have confidence in the one who has changed you. I have confidence in the one who will continue to change you. I have confidence in the one who will perfect you even on the last day. You can't. True story, he will. It's not up for negotiation. It's too easy for us to kind of pass over and miss that this is the non-negotiable part of the gospel. Right? Being a Christian doesn't mean that you come to church on Sunday morning. You should. That's a command. It's a good thing to do. Being a Christian doesn't mean uh, that you don't do bad things, though you shouldn't. That's a command as well. Definitively what it means to be a Christian is to be united to Christ Jesus and to be transformed by the Spirit. And Christianity is a thing, it's, it is a belief set that is transformative where God works in his people so that we're new, so that we're different, so that we're other. I love how verse 8, you get the sense of importance that Paul has with this. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things. This is not up for negotiation. This is not one of these areas where we're going to be flexible. The gospel of grace is that God transforms people. That transformation is given freely to them because Jesus paid it on the cross, and that transformation will produce difference in their life. It's why we can have qualifications for office that are all holiness-based qualifications, because the Spirit of God will change his people. He will. Which brings me really to the warning that then couples with this. I love with passages put things kind of in, in black and white and so obvious. It's good for my heart because I don't know about you, but my ability to kind of self-justify to rationalize, to use loopholes to say, well, it's not that bad. What's being laid out here is that God's people are transformed by being close to Christ, and it works out in all of their relationships with people, even their relationship with the government. And people that know not Christ are in bondage to their sin. The warning that implicitly goes to us all, I'm making explicit, is the warning of being a Christian who's been transformed and then going back to the sin, going back to the bondage, going back to the the misery, going back to those evil and awful desires, going back to the foolish ways, going back to the disobedience, going back to being led astray, going back to trying to become a slave again, letting our various passions and pleasures leading the way, passing our days in malice and envy, hating others. Friends, don't go back. Children in the church who don't know days apart from Jesus, don't try it out. It ain't fun. It's not good for you. Stay close to Jesus. 
If you're not a Christian in the room, and I thank the Lord we have those regularly, I guess, I would make it clear. This is your story. If you know not Christ, you are, verses 3 and parts A and B there. Foolish, disobedient, currently being led astray. You're currently a slave to your various passions and pleasures, no no matter how much you think you are not. A heart that's filled with malice and a heart that's filled with envy, and you actually know that to be true. And hate that surprises you even at times. And friend, I would offer you transformation, freedom, hope, and newness of life if you call upon Christ Believe in Him. Ask Him to change you, to wash you, to make you new. It's not hard. You need only ask. And lastly, more pointedly and perhaps a bit more specifically, to the membership of this church. The Lord's been really kind. He's blessed us for so many years. It would be easy for us to be captivated with that blessing or to be frustrated with the difficulties when they come or to let our griefs and pains dominate our minds instead of us being busy, staying close to Jesus. Staying close to Jesus. I love doing weddings. I enjoy them. They are a bit stressful as a pastor, I'm going to be honest. You can mess up a funeral and nobody will remember it. And if they do, they'll think, oh, he was just upset. He loved them so much. You mess up a wedding, everyone remembers it forever, and they will be telling it 75 years later. I love watching in the service, after the service, in the photos, and then into the reception, kind of the constant longing to make sure the spouse is within arm's reach. That's sort of my favorite things to see. That like the young marrieds, it's like they still can't believe it. It's still too good to be true. And so you don't want them to be out of arm's reach because you know happiness is found in some sense in them, and so they never want to leave. I love it. You get to see points where like the bride wants to go one way and the groom tries to go the other way and they have this like Loink, and then have to figure out which way they're going to go. Friends, I would encourage you. Maybe spend a little bit of energy thinking about Jesus like that. My happiness and my holiness and my healthiness are found in him. I don't want to get out of arm's reach. Right Outside of his circle of protection and safety and joy and gladness is just misery. May it be that we as God's people would labor to stay within arm's reach. Father, thank you that you work in ways that are beyond even our understanding. And we thank you for the power of your spirit 
that He works within us so victory is assured for Your people. Lord, would You stay close to us? We don't do a very good job staying close to You. And would You keep us within arm's reach? We pray for Christ's sake. Amen.